Welcome back to Lost in Citations. Today's guest is Professor John Wiltshire of Miyake Gakuen University, also the head of the Department of English Literature. Professor Wiltshire, how are you? Yeah, good. Thanks, Jonathan. Uh, thanks for the invite. Uh, yeah, looking forward to sharing a few ideas over the next, I don't know, half an hour, is it? Yeah, great, great. Well, can we? I normally go for about. I should have mentioned that before. I normally go for about an hour, but we took some. We took about fifteen minutes just chatting, so I can cut this okay. down to forty-five. If you, how much time do you have? Uh, yeah, forty-five would work. All right, let's do that. I've got a class later on, so <laughs> that's fine. That's fine. Well, so there's a lot. There's a lot to discuss today, but. Uh, the guidepost of the episode will be a chapter that you and your colleague Mark Helgeson wrote, which is entitled Tearing Down the Wall of Silence, Constructing the English Conversation Class at a Japanese University. This is chapter five in the book Teaching English at Japanese Universities. By the way, I've been meaning to buy this book for a while, and I actually purchased it today on a book depository. So I'm excited. I'm excited to read... I'm excited to read this book, and your chapter is, is excellent. So I, I, I highly recommend this book. I think a lot of people have already purchased this book already. How did this kind of come about, you and you and Mark writing this together, this chapter? Uh, this book was actually written, I don't know how many years ago it was, 20, 20, maybe more than 20 years ago originally. And then the two editors, uh, Paul Wadden and Chris, uh, Chris Hale, uh, they wanted to um, do an updated version of the book. So um, Mark was approached uh, to do that. And uh, then Mark sort of said, well, it might be better. Um, I was on sabbatical. I was just going on sabbatical at the time. And he said, this might be a good project for your sabbatical. So I, yeah, I thought, great. You know, I've got, I've got more time. And, uh, and also he said, you can bring your own ideas to the chapter and rewrite it. So that was, um, so I kept, um, there were parts which I kept just as, as were from the original, and then I added my own thoughts and ideas and updated things uh, to rewrite it. Now, for people that want to learn more about Mark Helgeson, there's a previous episode on Lost in Citations where my colleague Chris interviewed Mark. Um, I guess... Mark had just written a book about the science of happiness. How long have you been teaching or working with Mark? Um, it, it's funny that we actually, if you look at it, we do teach at the same university, but we're not in the same department. Oh, really? Uh, no, Mark's not in the English literature department. He's in the, what's it called, Gendai business, so modern business department. Uh, it's because they were reshuffled the departments a few years ago. Um, a long, long time ago, Mark asked me to be a part-time teacher at Miyagi Queen in the Koksai Bunker, the International Studies Department. Mm -hmm. And that I, I was a part-time teacher there sort of one day a week. Um, and then, uh, to cut a long story short, over many years, I, I carried on sort of doing some part-time work. And then uh, the English department approached, well, they had a job advert which perfectly matched me. 
so I applied for that, and uh, yeah, I luckily got the job, and that was about ten years ago. So, so now when people look at it, oh, you work at the same, oh, you must be working together, and actually that's not the case. We we don't work together because we're in separate departments. Um, uh, but of course, we we see each. It's quite convenient because when we're doing the work on textbooks or things, it's very easy just to pop in and and bounce ideas and that type of things. Now, you're the head of the English Literature Department. This is something that I, I didn't know before we had a brief talk before the podcast. Okay. This, this is quite rare for a non-Japanese person to be the head of the department, is it not? Um, yeah, I think so. Uh, I've been in Japan a long time now. I don't know too many people um, who are. Maybe they're just better at avoiding it than I was. <laughs> That could be the case. Uh, we're we're quite a small department, so um, I was just not very good at avoiding the job, perhaps. But uh, um, I have to say, though, we we've got eight teach eight full time teachers in our department, so we are a small department. We've got a the student uh, quota is is seventy students in each year group coming in. Mm-hmm. Um, and if I didn't have the support of my colleagues, my Japanese colleagues around me, it would be very difficult to do uh, to do this job. But the the team works excellent where I work, and uh, they know that there's some. I've got some weakness, especially writing well written documents in Japanese is still quite challenging, and I get a lot of support from other teachers if I need to do that side. Um, but um, you know, with language learning, you probably know yourself, Jonathan. Like, uh, when it's necessary, you you have to do it. And sometimes people talk about high stakes communication. It was mm-hmm. a topic I looked into I don't know, a couple of years ago, um, and that's actually when you remember the most. <laughs> mm. When it really matters. I mean, sometimes it's with personal relationships. If you're in a relate, if your partner is 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 Japanese, for example, if you were studying Japanese, and there's some real big, and you don't want to make a mistake with what you say, <laughs> this is called high stakes communication, and it tends to be the word you don't forget them, <laughs> you don't forget those ones. And when I have to stand up in in our university at the uh, the the faculty meetings and things like this and represent the department, um, yeah, I I sort of I'm rehearsing. Uh, in my own head, and, and we talk about think time uh, in in first hand as well, giving students the chance for a bit of silence. We, we were going to mention that I think later on as well, that allowing students some silent time, just to say a minute, a couple of minutes before we demand the output, the going to the speaking activity, and uh, I I I'm rehearsing all the time when before I stand up at these these meetings and have to make make my point very clear because I know it was a mistake. In front of 60, diff- 60 faculty members, it, it's it's really high pressure stuff, and, and it's high stakes communication. Because if I get it wrong, number one, I'm going to look look like a bit of an idiot, and, and two, um, it, it, we're not going to. It's not going to get my point across, and it really, I wouldn't be standing up if I didn't sort of really have an important point to make at these meetings. So, I found my Japanese got a lot better since since doing this role. Uh, before I used to stay in my comfort zone, and I touch on this in the chapter as well, that uh, I tended to use just the language I already know. Um, and I didn't uh, sort of, I was, I'd stopped learning 
new words as much as I used to do or new ways to express certain things. But but then I've suddenly I'm in this, like I say, high stakes communication situation. And, and uh, no, I've got to make sure I'm, I'm jotting notes down and rehearsing and practicing. And, and your palms get a bit sweaty when you, you sort of first stand up and you've got to say something. But what I found was after I'd said it, I remembered it. I didn't forget. <laughs> I didn't forget those lines or what I was going to say, and uh, uh, that helped. I think so. I think through through that experience, it actually made me reflect on what I do as a teacher in the classroom, and I think allowing our students uh, time to rehearse what they're saying, uh, you tend to get sort of a, a richer content. Uh, especially in sort of like pair work, group work, speaking activities in the classroom, rather than just immediately say, okay, come on, stand up, let's get on with it, let's hurry up, mm. this type of thing. No, just just take a couple of steps back. Say, no, no, take your time, rehearse, think about what you're going to say. And I call it in this chapter, and we call it in first time, think time, um, which is uh, important, I think. Well, I'd like to ask you a little bit about your background and this is something that we've talked about before because you you travel around uh, the country and maybe other countries as well, um, talking about the textbook English firsthand, which we can touch on a little bit later in the podcast. And one of the things you like to ask people and discuss is, you know, how long have you been in Japan? So I'd like to, to ask that to you. How Can you give me a little bit of a background? You know, how long have you been to, to Japan? Why did you come to Japan and, oh, and that sort of thing. <laughs> I first came in 1990, which seems an awful long time ago now. Um, I was a teacher before in the UK. I trained as a teacher at uh, Lancaster University in the UK. And I was a primary school teacher in Britain. Um, after doing my first job three, nearly four years, I think it was, in the UK, um, I applied. I was... I wanted to go to an international school in Europe, actually, in Austria or Switzerland. Hmm. But for I applied for three jobs, and Japan was my third choice, interestingly, because the other jobs were real teachers. Um, and the Japan job was an assistant language teacher, an ALT position. Um, so, But the other two jobs fell through, and uh, the third choice job was, was uh, coming to Japan as an ALT at that time. And uh, strangely enough, I, I nearly didn't get the job in Japan because they said, you're overqualified. Mm. Um, and I said, well, surely I'm a teacher. Isn't that a good thing? <laughs> ah, but you, you're a bit overqualified because <laughs> you're a real teacher. And, uh, <laughs> and, I, and, and I didn't think too much of it at the time, but after I've been doing the ALT job for a year or a year and a half, I, I often went back to that comment and thought, oh, okay. <laughs> when I was feeling a little bit frustrated, perhaps not not being given enough sort of autonomy in the mm. classroom to do what I wanted to do, I was used to taking responsibility for students in the classroom. And, uh, of course, as an ALT, um, the role was different. And, and and at that time, I couldn't speak Japanese at all anyway. So you couldn't you couldn't really take, take full... <laughs> full control of the class. But it, it, it does still slightly amuse me. And when I, I, st I, I meet a lot of ALTs now as well, and the issues are still there, just as they were in 1990. Some, some ALTs feel underused. They, they feel they're not allowed enough um, uh, freedom in the classroom to do things. They, 
sometimes they, they, they get frustrated, they want to try and do more, try to help the students a little bit more. Um, and, and when I, I listened to it, I, 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 these issues were there. <laughs> they, they were there. 1990 was, how long ago was that? 20, no, more. It was 30 years ago. Where, what city? <laughs> what, what city were you? Uh, Matsuma. Where? I was in Matsuma. Where's that? Uh, Miyagi. It's okay. about it's about thirty minutes from where I am now. I see. Okay. So <laughs> yeah, so was, I've always been in Miyagi. What was um, it? What was it like back then? Uh, must have been far less amount of foreigners in the country. I see. Yeah, that, that's the big difference. That's the big. Difference. I think the educational things and the way LTS are used. Um, there's been a few changes, but the biggest difference was the reaction to to me or to you um, uh, when they see a different face, a non-Japanese person. There used to be a a huge reaction to it. Uh, And a lot of the role was to try to get children more used to just seeing a different person around. So in that sense, I think there has been a a huge change and a a change for for the positive, I think. Now... Uh, you you don't get that, and um, uh, people are much more relaxed. And um, I still think probably there's areas in Japan where you might might still get that reaction, but much 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 less. Yeah, I think uh, it does vary because I would say yeah. I got the reaction much more in Kumamoto than Fukuoka, and of yeah. course much less in when in Tokyo. How, yeah. how did you how did you find that? Because I came to Japan for one year in 2007. And at that time, you know, I, I met my wife and we moved to Australia and I, I was thinking I might never come back to Japan. Uh, my Japanese ability didn't really improve. You were lucky, I guess, because you were in ALT. I was in Eikaiwa, which is 100% English. I tried to do some uh-huh. Japanese. My Japanese ability wasn't great. I was getting frustrated and I was getting a bit of anxiety at times, people staring at me. It was uh-huh. kind of novel at first. You know, how did you how did you handle that? Did you end up leaving Japan and coming back or you... You adapted. Uh, did you do you... one year, Jonathan, or two? I did, like, it was about a year and a half. Yeah, I did two. Uh, the ALT program, probably everybody listens to this, knows it's a one-year contract and you can renew it. You could renew it twice at that time. And I think it's I think it's still the same now. Uh, so I did one year at, um, I worked at Matsushima High School. Mm-hmm. And then the Board of Education moved me to, it was called Nijoko in Sendai, at the time, which is the second, it's a number school for girls in Sendai. And that's a very high level school. It was probably the highest level in Sendai. Um, well, there's a boys school and a girls school at that time. So it was very, very different. The first year was, uh, it wasn't at that sort of higher level, but the, the role the, the role of the teachers, what the teachers were trying to do was also slightly different because the students were probably going to finish their schooling after high school in my first year at uh, the Matsushima High School. But in the, in the second year, they were all going to go on to university. And I was very interested in education and comparing education of Britain to Japan at the time. Because when I came over, it was the end of this, what's called the bubble era mm-hmm. in Japan. And a lot of people in Britain and the States, I think, as well, were saying, what, why is Japan so rich? Whereas it must be something to do with their education system. Mm-hmm. And so I was coming over with, okay, let's go and find out about this education system and, and find out why this education system is creating all this massive wealth in the country. Mm-hmm. And I quickly realized that wasn't, wasn't, <laughs> wasn't the case. Uh, 
and, and, and I also realise that education system is very, very integrated with society as a whole. Mm. And if Britain at the time wanted to copy uh, the practices of Japanese education and sort of lift them out of Japan, if you like, and transport them over to the UK and uh, then implant them into the education system in, in the UK, I realised most of them would not be effective because they, they're reliant on so many other parts of Japanese society. Um, and you, unless you move the whole of the society and the belief system and the culture that goes with it to the, to the UK, which is obviously impossible. Um, so I realised that when people talk about methods or, or this way of doing it, we have to be quite careful that you don't oversimplify mm -hmm. uh, a situation. And just, just because it works in a particular situation, we know this with our own classes as well, I think, Jonathan, that, okay, something might, it worked very well with these particular group of students in this particular setup with this particular class. But even, even within Japan, sometimes even within the same university, something doesn't work very well with a different class. Uh, without saying we could move this method or these ideas from one country to another country. So, um, yeah, it was fascinating to, and I, got, I was very fortunate to get the chance to work at two different levels of high school. And also I was visiting junior high schools at the time. And in Matsushima, there's, there's one junior high school on an island. I had to catch the ferry over to this uh, junior high school. So it gave me a, a, a very... Uh, a very interesting insight into the education system. And one with, like you say, you were in the Aikaiwa, uh, on the Aikaiwa scene. And, and ALT, I, I really respect that I got the chance to see this inside of, of these schools. And, and, and it, was, it was fascinating. But after two years, um, that was enough uh, for me. And what personally. happened after the two years? You went back to the UK? Yeah, I went back to the UK and I got a job. Uh, again, as a primary school teacher in, in the UK. Um, and interestingly, the, the, the UK, uh, it was, I was working in Manchester, just south of Manchester, and, and they said, oh, there's a salary point system in the UK. And they said, oh, well, you've had two years working in, the, in Japan as a teacher, so we're going to put your salary up two points. Nice. And they counted. And I, and I thought it, the reverse would not be true. Like, Jap Japanese system would not count that experience so um and the, the funniest thing was they they said have you got any documentation and and i said yeah i've got loads here this is what i did and it was all written in japanese and then they put the points up two points and i thought they can't they can't possibly have read anything <laughs> on this but but they took it as okay we've got the we, we, we can see what you've been doing sort of thing so uh and then um, and then what after a few years you you started to think you wanted to come back yeah. Um, yes, uh, I thought again there was a relationship was was all a big part of it. My relationship with my wife, uh, and um, then I thought I'll go to I'll go back to university, and I did a, a master's degree at Manchester Uni in mm -hmm. uh, in Tiso, uh, and uh, I gave up the job. Actually, I gave up teaching and did that full time, wow. and. Um, yeah, we were a bit struggling for money at that time. <laughs> uh, and then we, we came back, came back to Japan. And again, I was an ALT, funnily enough, when I came back. Was... How was that the second time coming back as, um, the, as an ALT? Well, I, knew what was, I knew what to expect, and I knew it was a stopgap because I was writing my dissertation for my master's course. Mm -hmm. So the second time, I knew the job. Well, I knew 
the demands of the job were going to be fairly reasonable and I would have enough time to to write the, the, the thesis. I see. So that, and I actually wrote the thesis on semi-scripted listening in the junior high school, in Japanese junior high school. So it allowed me to try out um, the ideas that I had with the students. In, again, the junior high school was great. Uh, the teacher was great. The head teacher was, was very supportive and they allowed me to, to try these ideas. Um, and then I wrote the thesis based on that. So, and that sort of idea of practice—it was practice to theory in a way. And I, I do think that that is sort of more naturally the way I go. It's more let's see if it works in practice, and then let's think about why does this work? What's the theory? Can I then theorize uh, the process of what I just did, and why was it successful, or why did I feel? the students were engaged in this type of thing, rather than the other way around from, from theory to practice. But I think whichever way around you go, I think you've got to have both. Uh, the practice, you can't, if you just do practice, you don't really know why you're doing what you're doing. You're really filling time slots. Probably. That, that is so interesting you said that, because I, I feel I'm exactly the same as you. Um, as far as my own personal story with silence, when I mm. was working at an Aikai, well, this is, this is later, 10 years later, it was my okay. job to assess student levels. And I guess it was sort of like this f f quote unquote free lesson slash assessment. So they wanted the, the assessor to sit in the room with the, the prospective, you know, client or whatever for 40 minutes, which is interesting because as you know, you know, when, uh, when you know, if someone's a pure beginner, you can tell within one second. <laughs> and, but they told me I had to sit in that room and follow this script. And there was times where I was sitting with a student or a prospective student. I would say, what's your name? And I would get, you know, silence. And I, and I wasn't allowed to leave the room. So at times I actually had to sit with silence for, you know, 10, 15 minutes. And then th th I, I could see things changing after that. And then I came up with this idea where, you know, on a, I could tell they were really nervous. And I said, you know, on a scale of one to 10, how nervous are you? And I saw that, mm -hmm. that sort of relaxed them. And then that's the whole basis of my current PhD. That one, uh, that one thing uh -huh. that I came up with where I thought, okay, I need to do something here. And then mm -hmm. I started doing that practice. And then now from that point forward, I've just been researching why is that? And now I'm learning more about the theory behind it. So I'm totally yeah. on your side. Practice first. And then, mm -hmm. okay, why, why did that work? What is this? I don't know anything mm -hmm. about. And then you learn why it works. And it's kind of interesting. Well, you see, when you when you move to the theory and then you start to be able to verbalize it, then you can start to share it with like-minded people like we're sort of doing now. And then it becomes more widespread and more useful to other people. So if we don't if we don't work out why something we, we thought was, was very effective and we can't link it to some theoretical sort of background, um, we can't really present on it, we can't write articles on it, and we can't share it. As much. So it's not very useful if we don't take that step. So, um, well, yeah. this 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 chapter tearing down the wall of silence. This is right in my wheelhouse. Um, I don't know if you listened to previous episodes, but episode one of this series is with uh, Dr. Seiko Harumi, who wrote a great yeah. article about silence in uh, 2011. 
And we were actually discussing about how complicated the issue of silence is, is coming from a research, a research perspective. You know, from your, your perspective, you're giving te- in this, in this chapter, you're giving teachers tangible advice on how to manage Japanese silence in the university classroom with teaching skills. And then someone like me, who's researching, you know, language learning anxiety, and there's all these complications. Uh, there's all these factors that can determine silence. Um, so I, re- I actually really appreciated this chapter because you can give, like you said, you can share this knowledge to teachers. They can look at this and use it, and they can have practical tools they can apply to the classroom without having to worry so much about all the other, you know, you know, confounding factors that can influence silence. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm sure, Jonathan, you know, your research angle is is different from the way what I was writing in this in this chapter. Right, but. Uh, um, yeah, the, the whole idea of of science, that was one of the biggest issues when I came over actually to Japan was, uh, and the ALT, and it probably still is now that, uh, I, I read somewhere that in the, in the, remember I was a teacher in the UK and in the UK, in a primary school, the most important thing for children in the UK, if the teacher asks a question is the speed of the answer, <laughs> right? <laughs> not whether it's right or wrong, um, <laughs> It's actually the speed of the response. Uh, somebody did some research into this, and they said that, ah, okay, so when I ask a question, because the teachers don't like to wait. Right. Uh, and I didn't like to wait. Therefore, if I get to wait, I get, I get annoyed. I, get frust- I got frustrated with it until mm-hmm. I started to reflect on my own behavior. <laughs> and, and, like, um, and, the, and the kids, of course, children are very... Um, perceptive on this they know that okay i've got to, i've got to make a quick response and actually it's part of i think it's, it's a cultural point now that if you go it, it, okay and the teacher if you make the wrong answer you see in a, in a primary school in the uk the teacher will say oh and that's not quite right but it, that was a good try that was uh, i thank you for sharing that well thank you and, and it's a positive response it's wrong mm-hmm. <laughs> it's wrong the, the actual student uh, the student has shown their ignorance mm-hmm. <laughs> they haven't got the right answer but they don't get they don't get a negative response from the teacher as long as they answered quickly. They the teacher will thank them for the answer and they'll move on until they get the right answer. Mm-hmm. But when I came as an ALT, and I'm sure you what you just touched on about sitting in the room with the, the English conversation school, uh, when you ask a question in the junior high school, when I first, you didn't get a quick answer. Uh, speed was not the number one. Uh, requirement when a teacher asks you a question in in the schooling system when I came over to Japan, and the, the number one was getting the correct answer mm. uh, in, in in Japan, uh, and speed was probably third or I mean, much lower down the list. In fact, sometimes I felt it was quite painful. I was waiting and waiting, and sometimes the one student turns around, talks to the person yep. behind them, to, to, on the person on the left, right. They get they get agreement that yeah I think this probably is the right answer and I'm sort of you can imagine this fresh off the boat Johnny like well come on guys can we speed up a bit here but then I had to reflect say why am I so impatient with all this and and and, and it was me at the problem the students didn't have the problem it was me and and it was a matter of trying to adjust to that um, and then usually the answer is 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 correct at the end of it. Um, the problem was I used to ask very simplistic questions and I was just doing it to try to encourage engagement in the classroom. They weren't sort of real questions that I was <laughs> trying to find out the answer to. And I think that was something that I, I reflected on. Okay, 
they're going through the same process, whatever level of difficulty this question is, uh, to come up with the right answers. And I thought, come on, it's such an easy question. I'm sure you can answer it. Of course they could answer it. Well, you, you, you brought up an interesting point about the cultural differences, right? Because I would say from the Western perspective as the teacher asking the question to the class, it's just giving an opportunity for everyone to internalize and think about the question instead of just where the, with the Japanese system, which has been written, it's more about transmitting knowledge from the, the teacher okay, to the yeah. student. All right. So, yeah, that, may, that fits with, with yeah. So... Yeah, I think I, I'm totally with you where we're sort of like, okay, well, okay, what's the answer to this? And it's you don't really care if people get the answer right. It's just giving people an opportunity to think, get some feedback and move on, keep it moving. Let's keep some – like I think Western <laughs> teachers, we like some you know rhythm and momentum and let's get some flow and let's get to the end. And like you said, in Japan, it's all about confirming that the right – it's almost like that – like we've chosen a representative of the class. And that class must <laughs> represent the views of that class and, and then adequately convey the correct information. It's so, it's so fascinating. It's, it's, yeah. very, it's very confronting, yeah. actually. Well, I'm sure this will come up with, with the stuff you're researching now, uh, Jonathan, uh, like why there is silence or why things take, take a lot longer. To, but the, the, like you said, it's the interaction pattern. Um, you know, the IRF patterns, the, 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 the two wars that you did, did that Nottingham University was it? Um, the, the the reaction and the the what was it? The initiation, reaction, and feedback pattern of of, of classroom interactions. Uh, and there's all sorts of different different feedbacks. And and quite often the teacher says good, good, and and irrelevant whether it was good or not. It's just okay. <laughs> we got some sort of like you said. We I want to keep people awake. I want to keep them switched on. I want to give this class some energy. You've got to feel an energy. We're all uh, interacting. And this is why recently the active learning, which has been um, one of the slogans from the Ministry of Education here, um, to, to most of my colleagues and things, this is just, I mean, we were doing this 20 years. How else do you do it? <laughs> it's like, how else can you do a, a skill class like speaking class or a communication class if it isn't active? I mean, it, it it obviously that is by definition that that's what it sort of has to be. So um, again, the, these these ideas. Oh, they want to take that idea and try to expand it to other classes and get students more engaged. Uh, and and that illustrates to me that okay, this is not a natural. Maybe active learning isn't isn't something which was naturally happening within within the classes uh, in Japanese junior high schools, maybe high schools and universities as well. So. Well, to jump into the article, and this is actually touching on a few things that you mentioned with, from your own experience about standing up in front of your colleagues. You you know these are the three things I kind of wrote down for the beginning of the interview: is, is rapport, errors, um, using the language. So. How do you, in your classroom, uh, prepare an environment where students understand that errors are okay and it's sort of a part of the learning experience where that's sort of different from what a Japanese junior high school and high school student would feel, right? Um, okay. Um, error. When you say error, Jonathan, um, an error... Like, for example, like the idea that like, go, like we don't need, we don't need you to say the correct answer all the time. We just want you to try. 
And this is something that my colleague Chris Haswell does in his in his lessons. He really tries to set up an atmosphere where it's okay to make mistakes. It's not it's not all about being perfect. We have to go through yeah. this process, even though it's painful, like you said, when you use language in high stakes and mm. it went wrong. But then okay, you you learn from it and you you know, that's just you have to go out of your comfort zone. And it's yeah. I find it hard to get t- students to buy into that because they're so used to how it has to be perfect and we need to be accurate. And that really shuts down people from speaking, which a- adds to silence. So like how, like, is it, is it a language thing? Do you speak to them in Japanese and tell them in the being, beginning of the term, okay, look, it's okay to make mistakes. Um, it's okay to take time and think about what you want to say, but you know, we'd like you to okay, produce okay. language. There's, there's, there's quite a lot there. Yeah. Um, I've just come off a class actually just before lunch here. Uh, and one example springs to mind. Um, it's a class of 48 students in a listening class, and we're using English first time. We're using the My Mobile World, which is the online part, when they, after the class. So half the class before, I chat to them. We go through a few of the exercises in the textbook, and then I assign the online part for them to get on with. And uh, because there's 48 students on a, if you imagine a Zoom screen, mm-hmm. um, I, call, I can fire off questions, and I called up one of the students to answer the question, and uh, the one that's fresh in my memory, she, she said, oh, sorry, sorry, John, I don't know. And she said it. I hadn't given those classroom English phrases, which I might do if they were a lower. If I was in junior high school, I probably would. Mm-hmm. Uh, I would pre-teach some phrases, which if you don't know, this is what you need to say. Oh, nice. To give them a strategy. So they're not, so you don't, go into silence or don't say anything, you should use one of these phrases. Uh, the level I'm, I mean, my, my students are university students now, and they, I didn't pre-teach that, but the students said it. And and I think what's important is my reaction to that. Mm. So today was, okay, that's fine. Uh, can somebody else help her out? Uh, okay, let's ask. And usually in a classroom, you can get eye contact, you can pick up somebody. But of course, online, it's much more difficult. You can't get those signs and signals going on in the class. So I had to call somebody else and they did they did answer the, the question correctly. And I said, oh, thanks for, very much for helping out. That was great. And, and then go back to the last student and then say, oh, did you understand the answer? And they said, yeah, yeah. And OK, oh, can you get the, the next? How about the next question? And then they got it right. So I think ultimately... When a student makes a mistake in a classroom, uh, it's the teacher's reaction to it which will determine what happens next time uh, Mm. you ask a question. And it won't just be what happens next time for that particular student. It will be what happens next time for the whole class. Because if if my reaction had been negative, I think, or uh, the other students, even online, they were listening to it, they would be pretty hesitant to to probably engage or, like you say, buy in uh, to it. But the, there was there was no loss of face. There was uh, there was the, the the student said they didn't know, and uh, it was fine. They had an interaction. They used English. We had a mini conversation, and and the next time I asked her, she she give them a second chance. It's usually uh, a good idea to try to go back and give them an opportunity to get something right. 
uh, and then of course you can you can praise the student and say, "Oh, great, that's well done." And so, rather than um, rather than finish on a on a on a negative where you ask them a question, they didn't get it right, and you've moved on to another student. Um, obviously, it's a bit risky if they get it wrong again. But if you're if you ask them a sort of maybe an easier question or something like that, it's uh, it reminds me a bit of like if, if if you ever ridden a horse, if you if you try to take a horse and you jump in with a horse if it refuses to jump you don't allow it to refuse to jump you don't get off it and take it back to a stable you you turn it round and you either lower the jump a bit but make sure it jumps before you you go back to the stable otherwise it will probably never jump again <laughs> and uh I want to I want to read you something from the chapter and this is this is I kind of want to dig into this a little bit more cuz this is a tough issue for myself. So you write first good rapport among everyone in the class teachers and students goes a long way. This means making the classroom a non-threatening place where errors are expected and seen as chances to learn rather than mistakes to be laughed at. Now, one of the prompts that you 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 mention in which you give students is I don't know and I personally think that's a very healthy thing to say. I wish people said it more. But, you know, digging into that phrase where errors are expected and seen as chances to learn, like you said, this is, and, and you mentioned in the, in the chapter, this is an opportunity for students to practice speaking. How do you balance, for example, I can imagine a lot of students making that the, the default if it becomes acceptable, where they just say, I don't know, masking where they actually might want to take a chance. How do you manage getting students to hide behind that answer and not actually taking a chance and going beyond their comfort zone? Is that something that just takes time and trusting you over the period of a few weeks? Or do you have, you know, specific things you do to help them like abandon that, that sort of, that would be like a crutch I could see if people just say, yeah, Oh, I don't I, know, John, I, mean, I don't know, John. Yeah. There are, there are things you can do. There are things you can do in the classroom, but I don't want to fall into the trap of oversimplifying it, especially on something like we're doing now, a little a podcast for people. And, 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 and there is a, they, 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 you want a sort of chicken nugget answer. Uh, <laughs> well, this is what to do, and then all your all your problems will will disappear. Uh, we all know anybody who's been uh, teaching, it's a complex business what we do, and uh, there's all sorts of things going on. And from one day to the next, students vary; their, their mood varies, the the, the 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 attitudes they bring to the class. We're human beings, and and as teachers as well, we. We try not to. I think if we're being professional, we should try to be pretty stable. <laughs> but it's not always always possible. Um, so I think largely it's to do with the relationship you have with the students in the class. And as we all know, certain students are much easier to make relationships and build quickly, build rapport with. And some students, it's much more difficult to do. It takes a long, long time. Um, one thing is always to be on the lookout, I think, for an opportunity to, to start the positive rapport building process mm. and, and never to miss it. So if a student actually does do something in something positive or makes a contribution, you don't miss that opportunity, uh, especially if it's a student who generally hasn't done anything like that before, you, you can quickly pull up, pick up on it. That doesn't mean to say in front of the whole class you suddenly go over the top, praise that student, because they may be, they may not feel comfortable with that. And this is again where we have to try to quickly assess what type of student 
that person is. Uh, so after the class, it might be you. you often, I after the class in private, I talk to students, uh, say, "Oh," and then ask them to wait behind, and then say to them, without anybody else hearing, "I, I really appreciated what you, the answer you gave today, and I knew it was difficult." And the, just little words. It only takes a few seconds, but I think that's like you took this rapport process. If you don't have the rapport, especially speaking classes and classroom management, is is, is very difficult. Uh, so I think that's one way to go. But I know from my own experience teaching in some more challenging places, it's not always possible to to build a report. Uh, it's just this is uh, this is not either we're not there long enough, we don't have enough time with these students, or it's, it's going to take it's going to sort of feels like it's going to take forever to do it. Um, one technique is the uh, no opt out uh, technique. You can so if you ask a question. You do not allow the student to make a I don't know response. Um, and um, if you've asked, the student knows if they've been asked a question, they have to they have to answer the question. But of course, like you're probably thinking now, yeah, he's like, hey, but some students going to say what well, I don't know, or they're going to say I don't know, and and they do. But then what you do is you go to somebody, you tell that student, okay, you don't know the answer, thank you for, for your response, but now please listen and we'll try and find the answer from somebody else. And then you ask somebody else until you get the answer. And then you go back to that student and say, okay, you repeat the question, now what's the answer? And then the student can say the positive answer or the right answer, and then you can, uh, you can uh, praise that student and say, thank you very much, that's it, great, you've learned. I'm really happy to hear you've got the right answer now, great. And then you can move on. This is called an it's it's its name is no opt-out. And you 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 very consciously ask questions and you consciously remember who you asked it to. And you if they don't know it, you go somewhere else, get the right answer, make sure that student is listening, and then go back to the initial student to to and then repeat the question. Um, All right. Well, th there are some specific aspects that people can read for some tools. Again, the, the chapter is Tearing Down the Wall of Silence, Constructing the Jap the English Conversation Class at a Japanese University. And I, I'm i assuming that a lot of these techniques, that th these practice techniques that you have created based on your theory have funneled into the textbook uh, firsthand, which you and Mark uh, wrote. So would you, uh, would you like to maybe... Um, comment a bit on the construction of firsthand or is it is it just like i described it was practice to theory more practice and then you're trying to share those those tools in the form of a textbook which is english firsthand uh, i think you've summed it up very very nicely okay. <laughs> um and the main point the main point with english firsthand and i'm sure other textbooks which uh, are on the market we're trying to activate passive knowledge is basically what we're doing. We recognize that Japanese students do bring quite a lot to the classroom. Um, but if we're not looking in the right direction, we don't notice what they are bringing. But they're bringing a lot of study, a lot of knowledge, and what you touched on before, getting the right answer uh, in their English classes in junior high school um, before, or part, maybe in high school as well. So. They've got this passive knowledge. Uh, they can answer paper, paper test questions, but it's not active because they can't use it. They're not an English user, as I often say, moving from being an English learner, trying to make the student into an English user, which is 
the, the phrase I use at my university, that's what we're trying to do. And English First Science is trying to do the same thing. Uh, so we take the student with this passive knowledge and try to activate it um, through. Uh, well, the only way to activate things is to be active. So to, if you're going to learn to speak, you're going to have to speak. And if you're going to if you're going to listen, you, you've got to do listening. And uh, there's, if you listen to a teacher explain it, you will maybe understand the process better. But you still, I don't believe that's going to help uh, you to become um, a better speaker or user of English yourself. What you mentioned, you mentioned in the chapter for teachers um, to to activate that passive knowledge is to focus on vocabulary, grammar, and life experience. I thought that was really good advice for teachers to sort of focus on activating passive knowledge. That's something that I, I should think about more in my own teaching. Well, I think we have to recognize where the students are coming from. And uh, once you've been in Japan, I don't know, John, how long you've been in Japan now. Um, but once you've been here a few years, uh, the skill is to recognize what the students do know. And they do know, uh, they've studied grammar, they do know um, some quite a large number of vocabulary items, um, and they've got life experience. So obviously the life experience enables you to personalize the speaking exercise because they've got something to talk about. Um, and the grammar, uh, given time, and this go, sort of goes back to what we are touching on silence before, if you give them think time, because they have to consciously process what they're going to say at, at the, with that weaker, weaker students who really have had no opportunities to practice speaking, they need to be given time to sort of plan out and rehearse what they're going to say. Um, then, then it, 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 it's possible. You, you can get content. You can get, uh, you can get conversation. You can get speaking practices. But if you don't, if you don't give that time and we don't recognize um the the the, the power of personalization i think the, these real experiences they bring that increases the motivation hugely if when i work with a textbook which is it, it doesn't allow for personalization of the activities it's a it's a conversation text given on the page and the students uh, practice that that text but it's completely not related to them um, in any way, then it's very dry and, and it doesn't have motivational value. In fact, it probably does the opposite, it's sort of demotivation. Um, so, um, yeah, so those three points, vocabulary, grammar, and uh, real-life experience is what your students are bringing to the classroom. And then it's up to us to try to use those and, and structure the activities in a certain way where those things can be used um, in order to get skill practice. All right. Well, the book is Teaching English at Japanese Universities, and the chapter is Tearing Down the Wall of Silence, Constructing the English Conversation Class at Japanese University. We're coming up on 45 minutes, so maybe last question. Um, how, any advice? Now, this book has, has a lot of great chapters on how to manage life as a teacher in lots of different aspects. It sounds like you could have written a few chapters in this book. Any advice about being sort of uh, a manager of teachers? I think people, as they progress in their career, going from lecturers to professors, um, they might need to shift their, their priorities from research and writing, teaching to managers. 
I'm curious on that myself. I, I wouldn't feel comfortable being a professor at this point in my life. My focus is more on the research and teaching. And I feel like if I became a professor, I would have to shift to manager training almost. Any advice about mm, how, yeah. was that a process? Did you actually take classes in management training, dealing with, you know, uh, you know, like eight teachers that are you're responsible for? I would find that to be a something I actually would need to find professional help in the form of classes or how did, how did you, uh, like I said, I, just, I couldn't avoid it. I think I, I, was, <laughs> I was thrust into this position. Um, one, one thing I, uh, I'm not sure I'm particularly good at it all the time, but if you, I, I used to sort of want to, it's got to be done my way. It has to be done my way. I've got a vision for this. And this is the way we're doing it. But gradually, I, I've realized that, yeah, okay, well, I, I, this might be John's way of doing it. John's got a vision of it. But uh, it's very similar to the student. If they're not buying in, if the people around you are not buying, you can't lead if nobody follows. And, um, <laughs> it's, it, it, you're not a leader, are you? you you're walking like on your own and then you turn around <laughs> and there's nobody there. So uh, it, it I think on that note is, is something I had to reflect and think. And uh, so probably what I, I do with my department now, I think everybody's a leader. I mean, we're a very small department, so I think it probably lends itself to that. But, yeah, by name, I'm the head of the department. But actually, by enabling everybody to to follow their own interests and not to micromanage things, not to micromanage, allow people to, especially in university, I think, because university teachers tend to be, pretty autonomous individuals anyway, uh, sort of two things, responsibility and control, really. Um, I never tried to give people responsibility without giving them control for something. Hmm. Uh, and uh, if, I, if I give them control, I do expect them to take responsibility for it. Uh, and keeping those two closely linked, uh, probably. Well, I, I appreciate the time. I know you have a class coming up. So again, it's Professor John Wiltshire at uh, Miyake Gakuin University. I, I, is it okay if I put your, your contact email if anyone would like to follow up and ask any questions on the show notes? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, please do. Um, so again, it's teaching English at Japanese universities. I actually purchased the book today. I bought it on Book Depository. The, the chapter is Tearing Down the Wall of Silence constructing the English conversation class at Japanese University. Uh, Professor Wiltshire, thank you so much for coming on Lost in Citations. It's been my pleasure. Hopefully we will do this again shortly, sometime soon in the future. Thank you again for listening to today's episode. If you'd like to contact the show, please send us an email, lostincitations at gmail.com. Please like us on Facebook, facebook.com slash lostincitations. It also helps greatly if you share the show on your social media platform of choice. And if you're feeling extra generous, please leave us a five-star rating and favorable review on iTunes. This will help us tremendously. One final thing, and maybe most important, if you enjoy listening to the show, please tell a friend or colleague. People often talk about their favorite podcasts, so let people know that you're listening. Thanks again, and we'll talk to you next week.